You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So Sunday afternoon, I was at home laying in bed, uh, having a bit of a headache. Lights out, but looking at the computer, and emails began to pour into my Savage Love inbox, all pointing me toward a blog post or a Facebook post written by Jin Gomeshi on his Facebook page. Gomeshi is the host and co-founder of Q, which is one of the biggest shows on the CBC. Uh, it's also now broadcast down here on NPR. In his Facebook post, Gomeshi claimed that he had just been fired by the CBC, cut from the show that he co-founded after his private and consensual sexual conduct came to the attention of his employers. It's a really long post. If you Google Facebook, Gian Gomeshi, you'll find it right away. But the gist is this. He says, after apologizing to his readers for revealing these intimate details about his private life and sexual conduct, that's really not their business. He says, I've always been interested in a variety of activities in the bedroom, but I only participate in sexual practices that are mutually agreed upon consensual and exciting for both partners. And he goes on to detail how he had a relationship with a woman in her late twenties and it was affectionate, casual and passionate. He writes and included role play dominance and submission. He says that they had safe words that they discussed their mutual interests in BDSM at length. And they joked together that their relationship resembled something like 50 shades of gray. The two broke up. Gameshi says he ended the relationship and again, according to Gameshi, everything is according to Gameshi right now. His ex began harassing him after he dumped her. The harassment included, quote, anonymously reaching out to other women that he had dated and, quote, reframing what had been an ongoing consensual relationship as something nefarious. Gameshi says his ex took her story to a journalist who disliked him and in an effort to defame and destroy him, just ginned up this whole story that this BDSM sex that he had had with her was non-consensual. And this all came to the attention of his bosses at the CDC and they fired him for engaging in a type of sexual behavior that was unbecoming of a prominent host on the CBC. They said, Gameshi writes that I was being dismissed for the risk of the perception that may come from a story that could come out to recap, I am being fired in my prime from the show I love and built and threw myself into for years because of what I do in my private life. Now, I got a ton of emails directing me to this Facebook post and basically calling me out to the barricades to defend Gian Gameshi as a victim of sex phobia and kink phobia. And a couple hours later, the other side of the story came out. The Toronto Star published a story interviewing three different women who alleged that Gomeshi physically attacked them on dates without consent. Quoting from the story in the Toronto Star, they allege he struck them with a closed fist or open hand, bit them, choked them until they almost passed out, covered their nose and mouth so they had difficulty breathing, and that they were verbally abused during and after sex. A fourth woman, a co-worker at the CBC, told the Toronto Star that Gomeshi had said to her at work, I want to hate fuck you. None of the women filed police complaints and none have agreed to go on the record. The story continues. The reasons given for not coming forward publicly include the fear that they would be sued or they would be the object of internet retaliation, which, as we've seen with all this Gamergate nonsense, is not an unreasonable fear. So Andrea Zanin, who blogs about sex, gender, kink, and non-monogamy and is a kinkster, 
had a long post up Monday morning, the next day, about Gian Gomeshi. I suggest you go read the whole thing. Google Andrea Zanin and poor persecuted pervert. The post will pop right up. But I want to second two things that Zanin said uh, in her post. The first thing she says is it says something about the success of the BDSM kink leather community's public education work that Gomeshi would take the gamble that it was consensual would outweigh you're the filthy pervert. That the stigma is on non-consensual these days, not necessarily on kink. And then Zanin goes on to say at the end of her post, Gomeshi could be totally innocent. Four women could be making this shit up anonymously because, well, I don't know. But that itself might be an interesting question. Why would they make it up? For fun? What exactly would be the motivation for this supposed smear campaign that four women would take part in it? Like I said, Zen's post concludes, Gomeshi could be totally innocent. I'm sure his many fans would like him to be. For now, I'm going to keep reading with my critical thinking turned up high. I suggest we all do the same. And most of the people I heard from yesterday, this is me, Dan. Most of the people I heard from yesterday are fans of Gian Gomeshi, fans who had only read his Facebook post. They believe or believed Gomeshi to be innocent and they want or wanted me to rush again to the barricades to defend him. But I'm not convinced that Gian Gomeshi is another Oliver Jovanovic or Jovanovic. Google him. He's a guy who went to prison, had completely consensual BDSM sex with a woman. She went to the police afterwards. He went to prison. He was not allowed in court to introduce evidence of her consent, including emails before and after the fact, emails she sent after telling him that she had a great time. And this was improperly excluded at trial uh, due to a rape shield law being misapplied. Google Oliver Jovanovich. You will find it all. J-O-V-A-N-O-V-I-C. And like I said, I'm not convinced after reading the Toronto Star story and Gomeshi's Facebook post, I'm just not convinced he's another Oliver Jovanovich. I know that kinksters can face prejudice and I know that there are kinksters out there who've lost their jobs or custody of their children after their private and consensual sex activities were exposed. I also know that there are violent and abusive assholes out there, straight, gay, and everything in between, who've attempted to cover for their crimes by claiming that everything that they did or stand accused of having done was consensual. And I know that the ability to produce emails or texts showing that a person consented to kinks A, B, and C does not prove that that person consented to kinks D, E, and F. Those same emails and texts also don't prove that a person who had previously consented to kinks A, B, and C didn't withdraw their consent during sex that included kinks A, B, and C. I'm keeping an open mind. People have a right to due process. People are innocent until proven guilty. But charges like the ones made against Gomeshi are really unlikely to wind up being weighed by a jury. Very few kinksters who've been abused, subs who've had their boundaries violated, will go to the police because the same anti-kink bias that results in people being fired for consensual, mutually pleasurable BDSM sex also results in police and prosecutors not taking the complaints of violated or abused or assaulted or raped subs seriously. A sub who did complain about a BDSM kink encounter or relationship that violated their boundaries would likely be met with a response like this. Uh, so you consented to being tied up and spanked, huh? Well, then you really can't complain about anything else that happened to you, including those things you didn't consent to or those things that you withdrew your consent to during the encounter. That said, a kinky dom falsely accused of abuse, they can also be treated unfairly by the authorities. Just ask Oliver Jovanovich. We'll have to keep reading. 
like Zanin says, with open minds and operational bullshit detectors. But we are unlikely ever to read Gomeshi found guilty or Gomeshi exonerated in a newspaper headline because there isn't going to be a trial, except for the one currently underway in the court of public opinion. And with four or five women telling similar and very deeply disturbing stories, with Gomeshi getting at best qualified support from kinky bloggers like Zanin, and with, and I think this is really important, with none of his other BDSM sex partners stepping forward to defend Gomeshi at this point, at least so far, it's hard to see how he comes out on top. Because with all the info we have at hand right now, this does not look like consensual kink. This looks like abuse. Coming up on the show today, lots of questions, lots of answers, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, guest Katha Pollitt, columnist for The Nation, on her new book, Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I am currently living in New York. I work in the fashion industry. I currently have an associate that works with me, and he's been diagnosed with HIV, which is something that is a very sensitive topic for him. He was diagnosed about four or five years ago, and he came out to me. The bottom line of this story is we have a director that we work with, and she has no idea of the situation, and he hasn't felt comfortable to tell her about it. And there have been often times when she's said, things that have made us feel uncomfortable, such as, you know, oh, don't go get an STD, oh, don't, don't, don't go playing around. There's circumstances where she has made him feel uncomfortable, and he's come out to me, and we've kind of shared a bond over this. It's been fall, and he's become a little bit ill, and battles sickness. It's it's not as easy for him to get over the common cold, and I feel like this weird middleman between the whole issue, and I kind of wish that he would tell my director, but I'm not one that can say, oh, you need to, to go tell tell everyone in the world that, that you have this situation going on, but I really, he's a real close friend to me, and I I just want him to be healthy, and I feel like him telling our director would make him be a healthier person in life and help him take better care of himself. He shouldn't have to come out to this director lady, whoever the fuck she is, uh, about being HIV positive for his own sake to make him a better, more open or healthier person. Um, this is a medical issue and it's private and he confided in you for whatever reason. Um, and it's really not up to you to force him to or urge him to or order him to confide in other people as well or just share it more broadly and generally or to come out about being HIV positive to everyone. That's not your role and he can be healthy and play this card close to his chest if he would like to, if he'd be more comfortable doing that. I think the person with the problem here is this insensitive clod of a director who is saying this thing uh, that is making your coworker feel uncomfortable. I would, if I were you, I would go to her and not in any sort of angry or nasty or scolding way. Uh, just tell her that, you know, every once in a while you say this thing about don't catch an STD. We're in the fashion industry and you say this in rooms full of people and the odds that there are probably people in the rooms where you're saying this who are living with HIV are probably really high, if not 100%. So that's just probably something you want to drop from your rhetorical shtick. 
because someday you're going to say it in a room where maybe it's not an underling, maybe it's somebody who's a peer, or maybe it's somebody above you who could really affect your career or really affect our business. So you might want to work on I realize I'm saying it in a really scoldy way, but I'm an advice columnist. I sound scoldy all the time. I snore scoldy. I can't help it anymore. You should find a way to just say this to her constructively. You're saying this thing and just, you know, no one said anything to me about it and nobody, you know, has had a bad re- reaction. I just think that, whoa, fashion industry, pause people who have, cro- who live with a chronic sexually transmitted infection, we work with those people. So you might want to knock that off. She's the problem. This director lady saying this insensitive thing, hurting your HIV positive coworkers feelings. She's the problem. He is not the problem. Hi, Dan. Mid-20s, straightish male. I work for a struggling nonprofit, and today I walked in on one of our executive leadership watching porn at his desk. It was after five, and he was watching the porn on his iPhone, not the office computer, so for what it's worth, he wasn't using any company resources. Additionally, though new to the nonprofit, he has, in my opinion, proven himself an effective and capable leader, and I'm not concerned that he's failing to do his job because he's distracted by porn at work. That being said, I feel very uncomfortable about the whole situation, and I'm not sure whether I should report it to HR. On one hand, if I have observed him watching porn, it seems likely that other people have as well. There are many people, most of them women, who work much more closely with the executives than I do. If they observed him watching pornography and were made uncomfortable by it, my corroborating report to HR could help make their work environment more comfortable and productive. On the other hand, I think it's possible that his iPhone was accidentally playing pornography. Perhaps he has a number of videos downloaded to the phone, and he was watching some non-porn-related one, and the porn one came on by shuffle or some other accident. Additionally, because I myself am not personally morally offended by this incident, I'm not sure I should be playing the moral crusader. I don't want to say anything to him directly because he covered the phone and it's unclear whether he knows I caught him in the act. I don't want him to think I'm hanging over his head or that I might somehow extort him with the knowledge. If it makes any difference, the porn was disappointingly vanilla. I had hopes for a little kink at least. The consensus in the room here uh, among the tech savvy at risk youth, Nancy Artunian and I, is that you're every flavor of asshole. You're the everlasting gobstopper of assholes that we could lick and lick and lick you all day long and never run out of flavors of asshole. This guy, your boss's boss's boss, was in his own office after hours watching a little porn on his phone. You stumbled over this. You kind of invaded his privacy and his space. You glared at his phone because you wanted to see exactly what kind of porn he was watching, and now you're wringing your hands about what you should do to make your workplace a safer environment. Here's an idea. Don't sneak up on fucking people and look at their goddamn phones. Don't invade people's privacy. There's actually studies out that show that dinking into a little porn at work and having a little porn jolt increases your productivity, makes you a slightly better employee. Of course, we can't have sexualized work environments that make people feel unsafe, but this guy wasn't doing anything that would make anyone feel unsafe. The person in your office who did something that night that might make someone feel unsafe is you sneaking up on him and looking at his phone. What if it wasn't porn that he was looking at? What if it was an email or a text from a friend about a really private matter or a text from his wife saying, I want a divorce or something that just didn't fucking concern you at all. But his porn didn't concern you at all. It didn't impact you at all. 
It doesn't sound like it's impacted this work environment at all. You're the person causing the problem in your work environment right now. People look at porn. We all now carry around porn delivery devices and also porn production studios in our pockets in the form of our phones. People pick up their phones and they give them a look. Married, boring people in long-term successful monogamous relationships, uh, Tracy Clark Flory wrote about this at Salon, jazz up their marriages by sending each other dirty sex during the day. Maybe what you saw that boring vanilla porn was that man's wife masturbating and sending him a short video clip in anticipation of him coming home and fucking the shit out of her. Maybe you invaded his privacy. Maybe you invaded his wife's privacy. You don't know what the fuck you did. And now you drop it. Now you never, ever mention it again. Now you do the decent thing in a circumstance like that, which is you pretend not to have seen what you saw. You let him believe that you didn't see what you saw and you move on. There was nothing aggressive about what he was doing. We've talked on the show a lot about how creeps and abusers and people who do uh, aggressively sexualize a workplace environment that make it feel unsafe for others, that they rely on other people's inhibitions, their desire not to make a scene uh, to get away with their bullshit, right? Where somebody might say inappropriate things or do inappropriate things or come on to somebody inappropriately uh, and they exploit that person's basic human decency. It doesn't sound like he's engaged in anything like that. He's not relying on his position of authority in this company to get away with sexual hijinks that others might not. He was at his desk after hours looking at his own fucking phone when you tiptoed up behind him and saw what he was looking at. There is no pattern here of inappropriate behavior. There is nothing that you need to report to anyone. So just drop it, everlasting gobstopper of assholes. Just fucking drop it. Hey, Dan, this is a 28-year-old guy out uh, in New York City, and I have a question about cum. For years, it always kind of squicked me out, the thought of swallowing a guy. Until recently, a friend of mine referred to it as his protein supplement. And I've started swallowing my boyfriend, and I think it's the hottest thing on earth when I think about it as some kind of erotic protein supplement. I was just wondering, what dangers come with swallowing cum from strangers who I don't know. And uh, I have no open mouth sores. I have no, nothing like that. I, I feel that, you know, disease might not be an issue, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Now keep in mind, the only person I've swallowed is my boyfriend and we're both tested and safe. Um, and then another question is how much protein is actually in it? Is it worth it? Is it, I mean, if I do it regularly, is it actually going to help or should I just grab a shake? Quoting from a piece here uh, at greatest.com on the nutritional value of semen it's in their health section, a normal male ejaculation about one teaspoon's worth contains between five and 25 calories and a minimal amount of protein. Semen is only 1% sperm. The rest is composed of over 200 separate proteins as well as vitamins and minerals, including vitamin C, calcium, chlorine, citric acid, fructose, lactic acid, magnesium, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sodium, vitamin B12, and Zinc, But there's a minimum, like they say, a very tiny amount of protein in there. If you are swallowing your boyfriend's loads as a protein supplement, you're really going to have to milk that cow with your mouth a lot to add up to one muscle milk style protein supplement. I don't want to dissuade you from swallowing your boyfriend's loads. Fucking go for it. 
uh, and enjoy. And if that's the trick you need to play, that you're sort of sucking the life juice out of him and swallowing his semen is making you bigger and stronger and faster. Knock yourself out. Tell yourself whatever you need to tell yourself to really get into it. That's, you know, semen, as I like to say, is an acquired taste. And you have found a route toward acquiring that taste. Nobody likes Guinness the first time they have a sip of Guinness either. But people work at that. People work at cum too. As for swallowing the cum of other randoms that you might be contemplating and what the risks might be, well, you don't have to swallow semen or even let someone come in your mouth to incur risks giving blowjobs. If you're giving a blowjob without a condom, which is how everybody, for the most part, gives blowjobs, oral gonorrhea, oral syphilis, oral chlamydia, and a small risk, very small risk of HIV transmission. The risk of HIV transmission uh, is higher with semen, of course. The risk of HIV transmission comes with semen being introduced into your mouth. Uh, and the risk is, everyone agrees, infinitesimally low. However, I know personally in my life over the last 30 years as an openly gay man slogging my way through the HIV epidemic, personally know two friends who have seroconverted uh, who were only active orally. So it can happen. I know people personally that it has happened too. But beyond HIV, all those others, you don't need to swallow. He doesn't even need to come in your mouth some random if they have syphilis. You can get oral syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, the rest of it. So I would stick to uh, blowing the boyfriend if you want absolute safety. And if you're going to blow others uh, and you want some added degree of safety against HIV, have them come in your face, not your mouth. Hi, Dan. I am a girl in my early 20s. I live on an island north of Seattle. My boyfriend and I have been seriously dating for about six months. We casually dated for about six months prior to that. I have known him for long enough to think that he's a good person, and I really care about him, and we're planning our life together. The other night, he got really drunk and wrecked my car. It was, like, right after my birthday party, and my grandmother was here. And uh, it was just kind of a shit show. I'm not as mad as I think I should be. Is this a warning sign? Like, should I be concerned about this behavior in the future? Uh, this is the first time anything has really happened. That's kind of alarming. And I think he's overall a responsible person. And people make mistakes. And I, I just don't know how to feel about this. Your boyfriend displayed colossally bad judgment on that night. The night he got drunk and drove that car, totaled your car. Thank God he didn't hurt himself. Thank God he didn't hurt anyone else. Uh, he dodged a bullet. I haven't talked to your boyfriend about this. You've talked to your boyfriend about this. How does he describe that night? How does he understand, frame, place uh, those events? And, you know, not to sound like an after-school special cliche, what has he learned from this experience. If he's making excuses, if he's dodging responsibility, if he's looking at this and shrugging it off, that's a problem. That in combination with this very terrible event might lead me to dump him if he were my boyfriend. If he looked at what went down that night and was in any way trying to minimize the risk, the horror, the danger, uh, the magnitude of the problem, I would take those two things together and dump him. But if he... When you talk to him about this, and it's not making a show of this, these are his genuine feelings. If he's mortified, if he's embarrassed, if he's ashamed, if he's assessing his life, his actions, if he's reconsidering how he drinks, when he drinks, the choices that he makes, 
if he's getting into an alcohol treatment program, if indeed it's an alcohol problem, as opposed to uh, drank more than he's ever drank before in his life, problem and didn't realize what was going on, then I might stick with him for a while. But if this happens again, whether it's the drunk driving exactly this exact same event again or some other event, action, choice that just indicates that he has terrible judgment and no ability to assess risk in the moment. You know, you don't want to be with somebody for the long term as a partner who has terrible judgment. One of the things we look for when we're looking for partners is people with good and decent judgment because you don't want to be with somebody who's a train wreck. And it's going to take time for this to come out, right? If he has a drinking problem, this is going to happen again. You're going to detect this. You're going to note it. If he has a drinking problem and he came away from this experience determined to stop drinking and does it, stick by him. But if he has a judgment problem, it could be drinking again in the future that he displays really piss poor judgment about. It could be a financial thing. It could be fucking around on you. It could be anything. And so there's two patterns to watch out for here. If the drinking uh, and driving continues, ice him. Get out of there. But if the bad judgment train wreck shit continues – if he just careens from this terrible choice decision to another one, and I'm not talking about routine, everybody makes mistakes, everybody steps on the rake every once in a while, everybody walks into a wall every once in a while. I'm not talking about that daily life sort of drama and accidental horseshittery. I'm talking about stuff that is on that level of getting that hammered and drinking and driving and totaling a car. If there's a pattern of that bad judgment shit, that train wreck shit, then you should also dump him. Because you don't want to be saddled. Drunk? You don't want to be saddled with a drunk. Somebody without any fucking sense? You don't want to be saddled with that person either. Sorry you're going through this. If I were you, I'd give him some time to prove to me that this was a one-time thing, lesson learned, and it, the drinking driving, is never going to happen again, and he doesn't have a judgment problem. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s kinkster and I really enjoy engaging in water sports with one of my partners. Unfortunately, I found out recently that I tested positive for HPV. So I was just wondering, is it still safe to pee in or on my partner, particularly in their mouth? Um, Is that like a way that I could possibly transmit it? I don't want to make my partner sick by accident. I know that urine tends to be fairly microbe-free, but if you know anybody who might be able to answer that question, I would really love to know the answer. Joining me by phone to help field this one, Dr. Barack Gaster of the University of Washington, a frequent guest expert here on the Savage Lovecast and in the column. Hey, uh, Dr. Barack, thanks for jumping on the phone. Of course, Dan. Okay, so before we get to the particulars uh, of this kinkster's question... We used to say that you know, the standard advice when I first started writing Savage Love 20 years ago and you made your first, I think, pee drinking appearances in my column was that uh, urine was sterile and microbe free. And that's not true now. That don't, We're not supposed to say that anymore, correct? Uh, it's still pretty close. You know, of, of all the bodily fluids, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's up there among the safest. It's the sterilist. It's, it's up there. Because yep. I've gotten pushback from people who say it's not sterile. And if somebody has an yeah. STD, particularly if somebody has an STD, it's certainly not sterile. Right. It's not completely clean, but it, it's relatively sterile as bodily fluids go. So if you want to indulge in bodily fluids and you want to indulge in the safest bodily fluids, roll around in a tub of piss. 
That's your that's your in moderation. That's your recommendation as a physician. Yeah, all things in mo- including moderation, including drinking urine. <laughs> now, this is a really interesting question. It's not often I get a question, particularly about a an STI that we've been talking about for a long time that I haven't gotten before. HPV, the human virus, for which there is now a vaccine, and people should be getting their kids vaccinated, their boy kids and their girl kids vaccinated. Even if you're a young adult and you're already sexually active, you should get vaccinated. Because uh, it can protect you against a strain that you may not have been exposed to yet if you've been exposed to any strains at all yet. So go get vaccinated against HPV. But we talk about it as this sexually transmitted infection that is transmitted through skin-to-skin contact. No skin-to-skin contact here in peeing in someone's mouth, if you can do the arc of urine, is her partner in whose mouth she would like to pee at risk for contracting HPV from her. You know, I would say the risk is really low. That, you know, the urine is probably much safer than vaginal secretions, you know, so if you were going to compare this to vanilla vaginal oral sex, that this is... Hey, don't get gross. Please don't get gross on the show. You know, some people (laughs) listen to the show in their cars with their kids. There you go, bringing up cunnilingus, like just boom. (laughs) Can we stick to wholesome piss drinking, please, and leave cunnilingus for another show? Um, I know so much about drinking urine because of working with you, Dan. 20 years as a doctor, and I probably wouldn't know anything about drinking urine. But thanks to you, I've sort of had to look it up a lot. And um, and drinking urine is pretty dang safe. And even drinking urine from someone who has tested positive for HBV is pretty darn safe. And it's probably going to be safer um, than sort of come into contact with vaginal mucosa, vaginal lining, vaginal skin, or vaginal secretions, you know, because, you know, the urine is, it's coming out of like a, you know, the, the small sort of pee hole, the small urethra. It doesn't have that much contact to the sort of, you know, so I, I don't know. I would call this a relatively safe sex practice. And, and it, it does bring up just the great point of how HPV is such a sort of confusing sort of STD, STI. I mean, it's by far the most common STI in America, like 80% of sexually active adults by age 50 usually have had it. Um, it usually only lasts for a few months. The vast majority of cases come and go and never cause any symptoms. And so, you know, it, it, but it's hard because we test for it a lot as part of pap smears because it definitely helps you to interpret the results of a pap smear. Mm-hmm. So people get these HPV results all the time that stress them out way, way more than it should just because, you know, it's something that 80% of sexually active adults in America deal with and it comes and it goes and it usually doesn't cause any symptoms and you don't have to worry so much about it being sort of transmissible from person to person because the odds are that any partner that you're with has been exposed to it, many different strains already. And we've talked on the show, there has been links drawn between uh, HPV infections in men, particularly these rates of oral cancers that they expected to fall along with the smoking rates actually picked up and that has been tied to or attributed to rising levels of oral intercourse. Is that becoming standard? Yeah. So is the risk really that minimal? To, yeah. To well, I mean, so, matter? yeah. So it's really the, the whole link to oral cancer, throat cancer is really tricky because, you know, we don't have it as a definite sort of causal proof, but it does definitely seem to be related. But the most important bottom line is that oral cancer, throat cancer is still extremely a rare form of cancer. And the lots of sexual partners or it being in 
contact with HPV or having HPV even in your throat is still might increase your risk of oral or throat cancer by like you know one or one or one or two times, but you're looking at such a tiny risk to begin with that you're still looking at a very very of all of the things that HPV can do, oral throat cancer is just not that big of deal. I mean, definitely it's tiny compared to cervical cancer. It's tiny compared to, you know, the awful stress that uh, genital warts can cause. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's just, it, 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 so it's, it's an interesting finding. It's like another reason to get vaccinated, but it's not a reason to sort of lose sleep over. It just is, once again, it's another example of how we, we typically do not apply or not, aren't encouraged to apply or allowed to apply a risk-benefit analysis to anything that has anything to do with sex. Yeah, that there's right. this infinitesimal risk of this very bad outcome uh, yeah. that may be tied to oral sex, but there is all this pleasure and joy that comes along with oral sex. And we yeah. don't go, I am going to enjoy these pleasures. I'm going to experience this joy and cognizant of and willing to shoulder this small risk. We do that with dinner. We do that with driving. We do that with snowboarding. We do that with everything else that we do as humans. Yeah. My favorite example is always people are going to eat chicken salad today and die from chicken salad because they're going to get salmonella and fucking die. And the response to that is no one should ever eat chicken salad. The response is cook the chicken, refrigerate the fucking salad. Don't be an idiot. Mitigate the risks. Um, But the response always, if sex is involved, if there's any risk at all and you do it anyway, you deserve what's coming to you and you're a bad person and you shouldn't have done that because that's just sex. And why would you have sex when you could not have sex and live to be a thousand years old? Yep. Yep. And, and, And you cannot plug this vaccine enough. I mean, this vaccine works really, really well. It's really, really safe. It's absolutely important and essential for all men and all women. And, you know, it's, and, you know, the best age to get it is age like 10 to 12, you know, so before most people have had any sexual contact uh, is by far the best time to do it. And it starts to become less effective the older you are and the more sex that you've had because the odds that you've already been exposed to HPV, different strains get higher. But, you know, for sure up to sort of your mid to late 20s, it is a good, effective vaccine that everybody should be getting. And the question whether you should get it after you have already had some form of HPV, like either from a pap smear test or from warts, the answer is yes, because there's just so many subtypes. And so just because you've been uh, exposed to one subtype doesn't mean that the vaccine can't help you by protecting you against other subtypes. And so, you know, this is an infection that can be prevented and it should be prevented. And, um, you know, and I know that there are, there've got to be a lot of people under 16 listening to your show and they should really all get uh, this vaccine, men and women. Quickly, before we let you go, I want to circle back to the piss drinking thing because I know that's your area of expertise, your particular area of expertise. We've just said that – write a book, Dan. <laughs> you should actually. Um, we've just said that it's, it's, a, it's a safe activity, relatively safe, safe enough um, to drink the urine of someone who has HPV. I don't want someone to extrapolate from there that it's necessarily safe uh, in the context of other sexually transmitted infections, particularly Correct. say gonorrhea, which is present in the urethral yep. tract. Yep, yep. So can you, can you yep. run us through the piss drinking recommendations uh, from your piss drinking clinic when it comes to gonorrhea, syphilis, <laughs> HIV, chlamydia? Um, yeah, I mean, so it is absolutely true that 
people who have STDs can transmit it through urine. And so people who um, have HIV can give HIV to others, people who have syphilis, people who have gonorrhea. Chlamydia, not so much just because chlamydia does not seem to affect the mouth or the oral region at all. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a form of, uh, of, you know, not so safe sex. And so... When we're talking um, about these other sexually transmitted infections. Right. The, the virus could be present in someone's urine if they're HIV positive and their viral load isn't zero. And chlamydia, gonorrhea, gonorrhea being the really obvious one, because if you've ever had gonorrhea or non-gonococcal urethritis, there is uh, emissions pus from your urethra and people yep. should be able to make that leap that if they have gonorrhea, not to engage in piss play. But, you know, we have to always worry about the biggest idiot listening. Yeah, absolutely. You're and right. The biggest idiot listening almost always is me. So <laughs> I'm glad you were able to clarify that for me. Dr. Barack Gaster of the University of Washington's Pea Drinking Clinic, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Always a pleasure, Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm a young gay man um, from New York City. And I'm calling in because I kind of had um, a really baffling experience on Jacked recently, which is a gay app, much like Grindr, for those that don't know. On Jacked, I was approached by an extremely gorgeous um, man, very muscular and hairy, with a beard, you know, the kind of standard, ex- extremely attractive um, guy. And he was beginning to message me and we seemed, you know, we exchanged a couple of messages and it seemed like our roles were kind of, you know, very fitting. I'm a very submissive person and he obviously was very dominant and into that kind of section. But then he brought up the concept of breeding. He said that I wanted to breed you. And I told him, you know, absolutely not. Like, I really need to deeply trust someone before I do their back. You know, because I'm a good little gay boy that was raised with a fear of HIV. I'm 22 years old, by the way. And he proceeded to tell me that it was okay that I had that fear, that um, I would learn to trust him. Um, but for now, we would do everything with a condom. And then later on in our conversations, we agreed to meet later in the week. Um, but then later on in the conversation, he mentioned that he was going to tie me up and blindfold me. And I wasn't going to have control over whether he used a condom or not. Um, if it was any other guy, I would have blocked him immediately, but he was extremely gorgeous. So I told him that that was absolutely not going to happen um, if we got together. And I told him that he was aggravating me by kind of threatening my body. And then he went on to be on the defensive. Um, I kind of basically bitched him out completely. And then he went on the defensive that I was being HIV phobic. Essentially, I was being prejudiced against people that had it, have HIV um, and that he has friends and he was deeply offended and that I was claiming that my blood was pure, purer than people that have HIV when that's not what I was going for at all. And I'm, I was just kind of wanted your opinion, like where the line is drawn because HIV, the disease itself, is a very dangerous disease to get. But at the same time, I wasn't trying to be prejudiced against people that have HIV. So I was wondering if you had any resolution to that question. This guy that you were chatting with, this bearded Adonis, is a manipulative piece of shit and you should block him. You should never speak to him again. That he pivoted from trying to reopen negotiations that had already been settled around safety and your reasonable POV around safety that you're open perhaps to condom free at some point in the future with someone that you know and trust and whose HIV status uh, matches your own, which is all perfectly reasonable. And then he tries to 
make it sexy that he's going to bareback you in a context where you're not in control of whether he has a condom on or not. And you push back against that, which is exactly what you should have done. And he pivots to this other issue, HIV phobia. You said nothing about in your call to me. I don't know what in your conversations with him. I don't know what's on your profile on Grindr or wherever you met this asshole. You said nothing about not being willing to sleep with HIV positive guys or feeling as if HIV positive guys were dirty or unclean. I hope you know if you're a listener to this show that guys who are HIV positive know that they are positive, are in treatment, have zero viral loads, are actually kind of less risky as sex partners than guys who believe themselves to be negative and may or may not be negative. And a lot of guys who go to bed with guys who say that they're negative, who believe themselves to be negative because maybe their last test was negative, will be persuaded by these negative guys to go condom-free. And a lot of these negative guys are positive and they don't know it. And they're not in treatment, which means they have really high, sometimes spiking viral loads and are insanely infectious. The pos guy in treatment is less dangerous than taking a random draw of a neg guy who believes he's neg. And you said nothing about not being up for protected sex with a pause guy. And he pivots to, oh, you're shaming my HIV positive friends and you're HIV for bull fucking shit. And I'm sorry, it is better to not be infected. It is better to not have HIV. That is not to stigmatize people with HIV. All of my good friends with HIV who are not manipulative pieces of shit working grinder and trying to manipulate 22 year olds into letting them fuck them without condoms would say this themselves have said this themselves have said this to me that it is better to be HIV negative because you don't have to take these fucking pills every day because there are still side effects because the pills are expensive and a pain in the ass. And there's also the stigma, which I think is bullshit and I work against and fight against, but acknowledging that it is better not to have a chronic and yet manageable condition is not HIV phobic any more than saying it's better to not be diabetic is diabetophobic any more than saying it's better not to be diabetic is diabetophobic any more than saying better not to, I don't know, fucking have a club foot is club phobic. It's bullshit. There is HIV phobia out there. There is stigma, shame, fear that exists out of all proportion, particularly the, the fear out of all proportion to the actual Likelihood of getting infected, the actual problem, to the actual life. You know, there are people out there who still think that it is a death sentence. It isn't. Not in the West, not anymore, not if health insurance, not if you access to the drugs. It isn't. What you were doing was negotiating with someone who wanted to fuck your ass about what you would consent to, about how they could get into your ass. And he disqualified himself disqualified his dick from ever getting anywhere near your ass when he trotted out that I'm going to tie you. I'm like, I'm going to tie you up and blindfold you. And won't it be sexy that you don't know whether I'm using a condom on you or not. And then after disqualifying himself from ever getting to your pants with that bullshit move, he disqualified himself from being seen as a reasonable, rational human being by trying to make this about your shortcomings, trying to make this about your bigotry and hatred and fear of HIV positive people, which is fucking bullshit. You are well rid of that. There are other hot guys in the world. Go find one of them. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old married female. I have been married for six years. About 
two months ago, I found out that my husband had been having an affair for a year and a half um, that started at his work. I then found out that he had what he termed an internet porn addiction and that he was having women send him pictures over the internet, but that this had stopped. Um, We have gone to therapy sessions to try and save our relationship. He is a 36-year-old male. He does not have a college degree. He doesn't keep a job. He's undiagnosed ADHD. Um, I'm a professional but, you know, we do not have the greatest financial situation. And so we've been trying to work this out. And he just got let go from his job yet again. And I know in my heart, um, I still love him that I could possibly get past this. But in my head, I know that it would just be better for me to cut ties. You know, we set things up. I only get paid once a month. We set things up to where I'm you know, paying most all of our bills and then he was paying for other things and now that's not happening because he's not getting paid. So I don't know. I I would like to work it out, but then I realized that I probably would be better off without him. Um, and then there's also part of me that feels like I'm keeping him around for financial and emotional support and dealing with other things. So should I break up with him or should we try to make a go of it? Your husband, who will hopefully soon be your ex-husband, he needs to get his shit together and he's not going to get his shit together as long as you're there taking care of him, as long as you're there paying for everything, so long as you're there providing him with, I don't know, emotional support that it doesn't sound like he's earned. It doesn't sound like he's particularly supportive of you uh, in any way, certainly not financially since he's kind of a financial train wreck and an employment train wreck. It doesn't sound like he provides you with much emotional support. It sounds like he provides you with a lot of worries and cares and grief. And I think you need to end this marriage. I think it's in his best interest as well as your own, particularly your own, first and foremost, your own best interests, but also in his. You know, you're not really a wife. You're more of a net. You are a safety net. You're not a spouse. You're not a partner. You're the net that catches him. So he doesn't have to be responsible. He doesn't have to get his shit together. So long as you're willing uh, to take care of him, to provide for him, pick him up, to take him back when he cheats on you in violation of your monogamous commitment to one another. And you just need to chuck him out. It sounds like you'd be happier without him. It sounds like you stay because you have this misplaced, perhaps beaten into you as a woman in this culture feeling that you're supposed to take care of this guy, that you are somehow obligated to provide him with stuff he doesn't provide you with. Again, financial and emotional support. That is not supposed to be a one-way street in a partnership. That should be a two-way street in a partnership. That doesn't mean that every relationship has to be uh, between people who pull down an equal amount of money or both of whom are employed. My husband is a stay-at-home dad who is now a stay-at-home dad of a teenager. A lot more staying at home, a lot less dadding these days. Uh, So I don't think that everybody in a relationship has to work. I don't think everybody out there is cut out to work. But that's not the relationship that you have with this guy, right? What does he do for you? You don't mention anything besides betray you, hurt you, use up your internet on the porn. Get out. Like Ann Landers used to 
tell people who would write to her, you need to ask yourself if you would be happier with him or without him. And I think you and I both know the answer to that question. Hey, Dan. So I, I listen to your podcast pretty frequently, and I agree that people shouldn't fake their orgasms. But I have a question. So the best orgasms I have are either from anal sex or just masturbation. And I still have orgasms from sex with clitoral stimulation, but I usually play it up a bit. And I'm wondering, should I feel guilty about that? Um, they're not, they aren't as good as the other orgasms. And um, my boyfriend thinks they are, but I don't feel that bad because I still get the ones that I like and it all works out. But I'm just curious, like, do you think that's faking if I play it up a bit, kind of like an actor? Anyway, um, thank you. I don't see the harm in this kind of faking. It's not as if you're faking orgasms. You're having orgasms. It's just the orgasms you have when you're not doing anal or you're not masturbating are a little less intense. They're not your best orgasms or your most favorite orgasms. And you're just, you know, putting some chocolate sprinkles on top and making it, you know, playing it up just a little bit. For what reason exactly? I don't know because you can't just level with him and say, you know, in some positions I have better orgasms than others. There are things that really put me over the moon and things that I really enjoy and make me come and things that make me come like crazy. He should be able to hear that. He should be mature enough to hear that. I'm sure the same is true for him. I'm sure there are things that you guys do that make him come harder than other things that get him more excited than other things. And you should have with this person the kind of mature relationship where you can just level with each other about that. When you really want to give me the most intense and powerful orgasm you possibly can, fuck my ass. What guy really doesn't want to hear that, right? But, you know, if we have vaginal intercourse because you want to fuck my vag, I like that too. I have an orgasm from that too. won't be as intense or crazy, but I love it. Let's do it. You shouldn't have to play it up, but the playing it up is harmless. Faking orgasms is harmful when you get trapped. You paint yourself into a corner with your pussy where – You've not been doing anything that makes you climax with your partner and you've led them to believe sometimes for years, women will lead their partners to believe that exactly what they're doing is what gets them off. And then when they want to level with their partners, they can't because their partner's going to be humiliated and feel like the entire sexual dimension of the relationship has been a lie. That's a problem. Those orgasms, those lies. Also, you know, it's a problem even in a short-term relationship when a woman fakes orgasms uh, with somebody who's inept or not attentive to her needs or attentive to a woman's needs generally because he may, if she fakes it just for his entertainment, he'll leave that encounter thinking that his dick is magic and that he's doing all the right stuff. And then he'll encounter a woman who says, no, 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 you have to touch my clit or fuck me in the ass or whatever it is that they need. And he'll think that she's defective or damaged because every other girl he's ever been with has been able to come just from his magic dick. And that's harmful. But the, the lying, the rounding up that you're doing, I don't think it's harmful. But I also don't think it's necessary. So I think you should level with your boyfriend or husband or partner, whoever this is. I think you should level with him. And no harm in rounding it up, no harm in this extra gloss, but no need for it either. Hi, Dan. Call me Raymond. How do you force yourself to fall out of love with someone? I guess, long story short, there's a woman for a number of years we were acquaintances and about a year and a half ago, we started to become friends. And very quickly, I would say she became my best friend. And quickly after that, it became physical. I fell head over heels in love with this woman. 
she is by far the best woman that I've ever known. The sex was always amazing. The conversation was perfect. I can't say that I've ever felt this way about anyone. It lasted about two months and it came to an end, not because either of us wanted it to, but because our spouses found out. I am a cheating piece of shit and I'm not happy about that fact, but it doesn't change the fact that I love this woman. When we were found out, we both went back to our spouses. We tried to make things work. And from everything that I know, she is happy again with her husband. And while I tried desperately to be happy again with my wife, who I've been married to for five years and as a couple for more than 10, I just can't always help the feeling that I love this other woman more. And I don't know how to stop loving her. And it's been almost a year now since we were found out and have gone back to our spouses. I've been debating calling you for a long time. As you can probably hear from my voice right now, I'm a little drunk and still trying to figure things out and crushed. And I don't know what to do. I was always happy with my wife until I met this other woman. And I don't know how to be happy with my wife again. And I don't know how to let this other woman go. Oh, Raymond, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm sorry you cheated on your wife. I'm sorry you tasted this forbidden fruit and now you can't go back. I'm sorry you fucked this other woman and it took you from a black and white world to a technicolor place that now you've been exiled from and you miss so badly. Uh, I'm not sure what to tell you uh, other than I am sorry. Uh, well, I could tell you this. The relationship only lasted two months. Of course, the sex was amazing, better than it had ever been still at two months. Of course, the conversations that you had were just perfect because in eight weeks, you know, when you really click with someone sexually, you're not going to burn out in eight weeks. You're not going to get to routine in eight weeks, you, with everyone, you eventually get to routine and then you have to start making some effort to mix it up and keep it interesting and sustain, you know, an attraction to one another. I speak to you from the future 20 years, right? You have to work at that. What is effortless and just a fucking roller coaster at two months is, you know, a lovely hike at five years, 10 years or longer. You do run out of shit to talk about, which is why all the research coming in now shows that people who get the fuck away from each other are likely to have successful long-term relationships so that you have some new shit to talk about. So you have some – because what do you talk about all the time when you first meet somebody? You talk about all the experiences you had that didn't – that predated them, that, that didn't include them. And you need to continue to have experiences like that in your partnered life so you can come home and share and tell and talk and enthuse and – hump their leg about whatever it is that you did or saw or experienced that day that they weren't standing right beside you as you did saw and experienced it. So wherever you are with your wife sexually and conversationally, you need to tell yourself that you would eventually have arrived at that place with this other person. Believe it. Believe me. You would have landed there and then you would have had to do what apparently you haven't done with your wife. You would have had to do with her, which is 
Work at keeping it interesting. Work at sustaining your interest in each other. And it sucks that we talk about marriages and long-term relationships as if they are just a grind. And they don't have to be a grind and they shouldn't be a grind. When you love somebody and you like them and you enjoy being with them, it's not work to keep it interesting. It's an investment. You're tending a garden that you enjoy the fruit of or whatever. I can't come up with a metaphor here or a simile that makes any sense. But you are investing in the relationship because you value it so much. It's not work then because the payoff is huge. So at two months, you weren't at a point where you had to start putting in to get out. At two months, you were just still exploding at each other. And it was so fresh and new and interesting. And blah. At five years, that it would be very different. It would feel very different. But if what you've learned oh – God, I'm just the divorce-a-thon on the show today. But if what you've learned in this relationship is that you can't be satisfied in the black and white world of your marriage anymore now that you've seen this technicolor place, now that you've – gone over the rainbow and blown loads in there for eight weeks, then perhaps you should end your marriage. If you're just that disillusioned, if you realize that whatever it is that you felt for your wife cannot compare to what you felt for her, whether or not you can get her back. And that's not up to you. Whether she comes back or not, she's not, she's gone. It's working with her husband now again. Maybe you were the wake up call her husband needed. Maybe who knows? Sometimes the revelation of an affair can improve a marriage because all bets are off and people get really real and honest about what they really want. And then suddenly the person that they're married to starts to give them what they really needed and wanted that they never had been asked for in the past. But if you can't love your wife, if you don't love your wife, if you can't be satisfied with what you have with your wife, because what you want now is what you had with this woman for eight weeks and go find that with somebody else and let your wife go and let her find somebody who can love her. Let her find somebody who thinks she is that technicolor universe. And you go find somebody else who is that technicolor universe because it's been a year. And if you're still in a weepy, sloppy, drunk place after a year, a year after the end of a two month affair, you may never come out of that place. As long as you stay married to the person that you're with and you're not out there trying to find what you had with your affair partner with somebody new. Hey, everybody. Katha Pollitt, columnist for The Nation, feminist, write-on writer, is on a tour right now for her new book, Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. We caught up with her on one stop of her tour via phone from San Francisco. Here's our chat. Joining us by phone uh, from San Francisco, from the glamorous Fisherman's Wharf uh, in San Francisco, is Katha Pollitt. She's a poet, essayist, and a longtime columnist for The Nation. Her most recent book, Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights, has just been published by Picador. Katha, I haven't read the book yet. I have it in my stack. I literally just got it this morning. Um, so I apologize that I haven't uh, been able to read it in advance of talking to you, uh, which is what I usually like to do. But in pro, you call out the left, the pro-choice left, for giving into what you call the awfulization of abortion. What do you mean by awfulization, and why has that been so damaging to the pro-choice movement? Awfulization, which is a horrible, awful word, isn't it, that I didn't make up, but I borrowed it. Awfulization is saying abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, which implies there's too much. You know what the right amount should be, mm -hmm. um, whereas you don't know either of those things. Abortion should be safe, legal, and available, and that's good enough. Well, that was the Clinton uh, term, right? Yeah, well, it wasn't just the Clinton. That was, it wasn't just the Clintons. That, that was widely said. Um, and abortion uh, is the most difficult decision a woman ever makes. Abortion is an agonizing decision. It's a painful decision. It's a decision women make with the greatest of reluctance. I think this is 
not an accurate picture at all. I think that that is to say a woman who had no thought of becoming a mother gets accidentally pregnant and all of a sudden seriously considers uh, having a baby. Only a few weeks ago, the furthest thing from her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, she should think it. She should. She should suffer to make that decision. Um, and, and to me, that's saying motherhood is kind of the default position for women. Uh-huh. She has to have a really good, strong reason not to become a mother whenever a stray sperm gets up in her womb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most women do not uh, struggle tremendously over whether to have an abortion. They look at their realistic lives and make a decision. Now, a lot of the narratives you hear, though, about abortion, particularly you know, in the, the decade and a half long manipulative bullshit uh, leveraged fake debate that the right has engineered around quote unquote partial birth abortion or late term abortion. Those narratives that you do hear often are agonizing where people, you know, these are people who wanted to be pregnant. Invariably people are having these late term abortions and these narratives around the agonizing choice, how difficult it was. Those are the ones that people are most familiar with. Is it because those are the only ones we're allowed to hear that those are the only ways women are permitted to frame their abortion stories and to avoid the stigma of having gotten an abortion? Or, or is it true? I mean, is it true in some cases that it is an agonizing decision? Sure. In some cases it is. Um, but that's not typical. A late-term abortion of a wanted child is not typical, a, a typical experience. It's a very rare experience. I mean, it's, it's, and I think that uh, the pro-choice movement spends a lot of time talking about abortions that we could all agree, or mm-hmm. most people would agree are justifiable. For example, I was raped. Uh, my father <laughs> impregnated me. Um, I had a wanted child. I was pregnant and it was going to be so wonderful. And then we found a c- catastrophic fetal anomaly at, at the 20 week sonogram. Or I was really happy to be pregnant. And then it turned out I had, you know, very, very serious health problems of my own. I almost died. I had to have an abortion. Um, and we hear those stories a lot. And I think the story we don't hear is the much more common situation of, I got pregnant accidentally, I was in college, I was in grad school, I had three children already, I never wanted to have children, I was 18, um, you know, I, I needed to keep my job. Mm-hmm. Um, all those very mundane reasons why women work very hard to control their fertility. We don't hear that story so much. And I think the reason for that is that uh, there are a lot of Americans out there who are not sympathetic to women's very, very strong desire. Autonomy. To their autonomy. Right. That's it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the term that yeah. typically most often gets associated with those sorts of abortions that you've just described um, are, is abortion of convenience. As That's if right. As if, yeah, as if having a baby is just an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, having a baby is a major, major life-changing experience. It's a lot of work. It's really expensive. If you do it right, you bring your whole heart to it. Um, and women are just expected to do that on the at the you know on a dime, to turn on a dime. Well, the, the right wing would call those abortion of abortions of convenience to stigmatize them and shame the women who have them. What is the term that? Uh, p- people who support choice should embrace describing those sorts of abortions or is it or should we just embrace yeah that was an abortion of convenience and a woman's convenience is important and matters no I don't think convenience can be reframed as something that's important 
mm-hmm. and it's important. I think convenience contains the idea of triviality in it. Um, and um, I would say uh, a woman is having an abortion for good reason, and we have to assume she's thought about it and give her the right to shape her life. Um, you know, one thing that's really interesting that this whole convenience thing elides is behind the idea of convenience is an idea of a certain kind of woman who has an abortion, which is the uh, wealthy, cold-hearted, child-hating career woman, the teenage slut, the promiscuous co-head, all you know, all that, uh, who is refusing to settle down to her biological destiny. Um, but actually, 60% of women who have abortions are already mothers. You know, that puts such a different complexion on it all. They are trying to support the kids and care the kids they already have and care for the kids they already have under very difficult situations. I mean, 40% of women who have abortions are poor. And that is all erased when you say convenience. Mm -hmm. This very particular reality and also the other piece of it Dan, which is, it's not like we help mothers and children in this country. You know? Well, you know, we say, if you, have a, if you have an abortion, you're a slut. Oh, you have a baby. Well, that's not my problem. Mm-hmm. You know, go take care of your baby. Who asked you to have a baby? Uh, I'm, an, I'm an advocate of choice. I'm firmly pro-choice. I'm a pro-choice voter. I want people to make a free choice. And I do worry about women who, under economic duress, choose to abort. And we have a system that sets women up for that. And then we have right-wingers who basically designed and built that system that creates economic duress for working class and poor people and then swoops down and scoops up these women who've had abortions that they regret because they had them under duress, economic duress, and they weren't, it wasn't a free choice. And then they hold them up as an example of why abortion should be illegal for everyone. And I, I find that personally so galling and politically so galling and brazen. It's enraging. It's enraging. Uh, if you look at each state in terms of its treatment of women and children, you really do find a correlation between the states with the most abortion restrictions and the states where women's status is lowest. Uh, the fewest women in state legislatures, the biggest difference in uh, earnings between men and women, uh, the least health care for women and children, and so on and so forth. And so it's just a lot of nonsense to say, you know, I'll have a baby. Babies are wonderful and we're going to help, we're going to help you, which the anti-choice movement will say. But what they mean by help is we're going to give you some diapers mm. uh, and a Bible. How do you combat, you know, there's this thing that goes on in the uh, marriage equality movement where the right-wingers who are opposed to marriage equality have this slogan, every child deserves a mother and a father. Which is just bullshit because there's nothing about two guys getting married that deprives a child who has biological parents that love and want to support it and raise it from doing that. And married gay couples don't steal children from married heterosexual couples. It's just – it's a bullshit non-argument. But it's very hard to combat because you seem to be the enemy of mothers and fathers when you try to refute that argument or respond to it or reply to it. You just have to sort of succumb to, yes, mothers and fathers are good and wonderful things. I had a mother and a father myself. You have to twist yourself to avoid, you know, to sidestep the sentimentality and the bullshit of that argument. And it seems that there's a parallel in anti-choice land with the babies. Who Are you against babies? Who doesn't love babies? And, you know, if you're for marriage equality, you're for gay rights, you're against kids having moms and dads. And if you're for choice, you're the enemy of babies everywhere. How do you fight that? 
Well, I think you say, look, most women who have abortions are already mothers. They're trying to they're trying to they, to plan their family. They're trying to take care of the children they already have. And isn't that the important thing? Isn't it better for everyone? See, this is what my my the point of my book is really kind of trying to reframe abortion rights as a family value. Mm. Um, and we'll find out how successful that was <laughs> in a little while. But uh, uh, it may be a step too far. But I'll. Uh, uh, I don't think say, so. I don't. Th- I don't, actually. I, I'm just going to interject. I don't think that's a step too far. I hope you're right. Buy my book. I have your book, Pro, and I, I urge other people, I, everyone listening, to 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 read it and buy it, and also to vote. Like these restrictions and rolling back of access to abortion in these shitty states, oh. are because Democrats yeah. tend to send out yeah. midterms, which is when Republicans yeah. seize controls of state legislature and redistrict, and and then fuck us forever. But most of the, you know, one out is it one out of three, one out of five American women have had abortions, and I know women. It's uh, one out of three. We've had an abortion by by menopause. And I know the the women I know in my personal life who've had abortions. It was about how they planned their families. It was about it was a family value. It was about timing. It was about caring for the children that they already had, and it was not the enemy of babies. It was the it, it was what they needed to do for like you said for the babies they already have. Exactly, and. You know, the other thing is that isn't it better for everybody, men, women, children, the whole society, if children are born when their parents are in a good position to take care of them and when they are born at a time when and where the parents can still fulfill their other ambitions and gifts and dreams? Um, I think it is. I think it's just better for society as a whole than when the what the alternative is is women having random children based on accidental pregnancies. Um, and you know, behind it all, I really do think lies, uh, well, besides disrespect for women and reducing women to one aspect of women's complicated lives, which is maternity, perpetual maternity. I think it really is about the horror of sex. It's about Punishing sex. I was on a, um, for women only, I was on a radio show last week with an anti-choice advocate. And almost the first thing she said was, the reason there's so much abortion in America is lack of self-restraint. Think about that. I I always make this point, particularly to gay people I know who are anti-choice. And anti-choice Gay people make my head explode because they can't see the well, link yeah. between controlling your own body, but also the link you know, between controlling your own body if you're gay or if you're a woman and making your own choices around who you're going to be with or or when you're going to reproduce. But also the link between or the you know what you just said. It's about this fear of sex, this terror of sex. They hate sex that's recreational, that's non-procreational. That if you have sex, you should be. It should be one kind in one context for one purpose, and if you're having it for any other reason in any other context, you're a terrible person who should be punished and stigmatized, and and your relationship should be illegal if you're us. And the gay people can't see that link. It makes me crazy, and that's what links gay rights to abortion rights. It's not just the control of your own body. It's also this is about attempting to tell people what they can and cannot do with their reproductive organs. And the gay people can't see that make my head explode. What explodes of yours when you encounter one of those gay people? Well, um, I don't very often encounter those gay people. The gay people, interestingly enough, when I go to reproductive rights conferences, they're, it's usually, you know, vastly female. But the men that are there, they're gay. And I'm always thinking, oh, well, this is great that you're here, but why? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I think... Uh- 
more and more gay people are understanding, you know, gay people can look at the world clearly are understanding, uh, have made the link that anywhere women aren't free, gay people aren't free and vice versa. That gay rights and, and women's rights march hand in hand. And the, yes, the same patriarchal cultures that oppress and stigmatize and marginalize women oppress, stigmatize and marginalized queer people. And if you can't see that, you're a lousy, blind, queer person. And if you're a woman who is a feminist and you're against gay rights, which is really rare, I don't think I've ever met one of those, then you're really log stupid. Katha Pollitt, the book is pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights, just published by Picador. You're on your tour, Katha? I am. I'm here at Fisherman's Wharf Hotel, having a fine time. <laughs> well, thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, and uh, good luck with the book. And like I said, I, I have it, and I'm going to uh, tear into it now. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I hope you like the book. Hey, Dan. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon, and I am seeing somebody who is in an open um, marriage. And I am having this party November 1st, and he asked if he could bring his wife. And at first, I was like, uh-uh, no, mm, boundaries. And then I was sitting with him for the past week, and I kind of like, yeah, I think you should bring your wife. And so I'm having some cocktails with my girlfriends, and they're all like, eh, no, do not do that. It's more trouble than it's worth. So I would love to hear back from you and tell me about this dilemma. I think you should absolutely let him bring his wife to the party. It's an open marriage. She knows about your existence. She obviously approves. Uh, hopefully she's not coming to this party to make a scene. I doubt very much that he would ask you to let him bring his wife if that was her MO generally when she meets the other women that he's dating or sleeping with. And what better place to to, to meet her than – a circumstance where there's some, you know, social convention around decorous behavior where you guys are going to chit chat politely, where you don't have to dive right in and start talking about your relationship. I think it's kind of ideal. You know, if you meet his wife in a situation where the three of you get together, it's going to seem very kind of poly handholdy, processy. And that puts pressure on you and, and them to sort of produce with the emotions and the whatever. But if you meet at this gathering where you're welcoming, friends and people that you like into your home and you're extending that invitation to her because you do like and appreciate her. You wouldn't be with him, or, you know, as much as you can be with him. He couldn't be with you the way he's with you if it weren't for her. So for you to express your gratitude to her by extending your hospitality to her, I think that's kind of beautiful. And that then that first meeting initially isn't going to be about talking about how you met my husband or what you guys do or processing your relationship or gaming out whether you're going to be a triad one day when you grow up. It's just going to be about chatting and having a drink and letting her see that you aren't in denial of, about her existence, that you don't consider yourself in competition with her and you're not wishing her away. I think that's really healthy. And I think that you should have her come to the party. And I think you should be super duper nice to her. I think you should tell your friends to go fuck themselves because they obviously know nothing about open relationships if that's their reaction. She's not your rival for this guy's affections. She is the person that has enabled you to express your affection for and to this guy. Invite her. And then give us a call back and let us know how the party went. Hi, this message is for the guy in the sixth marriage in episode 417. I just want to 
verify that when he asks his overstressed uh, workaholic wife to have sex, that he's just not asking for sex. You know, men can do that. Women are not receptive to, hey, you want to have sex? Women need a little bit of romance, a little bit of suggestion, and really a lot of mood setting to get into the right frame of mind to even entertain having sex. I am speaking from experience because my husband and I were heading toward a sexless marriage when we discovered that the issue was actually all about the ask. So make sure you are romancing her. Make sure you are catering to whatever her needs are, whether it's a foot massage, flowers, nice dinner, romance. If you got that covered, I know you said you were really focused on monogamy, but think about what it might do to ignite the spark with her if she gets interested in some other guy. Also, speaking from experience, again, we were heading toward this rather sexless marriage maybe once a month, and all of a sudden, just at a random event, uh, this guy started hitting on me, and we ended up making out, and I have to say, I had been not thinking about sex, not thinking about my libido, just focused on my work. And then this guy hitting on me just completely revved up my libido for the whole summer. I have to say, my husband and I had sex like three, four times a week from once a month. And I just can't thank this guy enough for the makeup session because he completely turned me on. And being able to unpack that part of my sexuality that I didn't even know was was a problem and was missing from my life. It was just like this whole new world that I had forgotten was a part of my past. I'm in my mid-30s and I'm having some of the best sex of my life and I have to owe it all to this gentleman who woke up my frigid self. Hi, Dan. This is the caller from a few weeks ago that was into the date rape porn. I'm calling back to update you. Um, I have not touched or even looked at the realistic date rape porn that I used to watch. I have kind of taken advice from different calls that you've answered in the past and kind of just stopped masturbating for a week or two. And then finally it just built up and I started watching what I would say more normal porn, like kind of amateur, where it's obvious that it's consensual, and some of the Japanese anime porn, which someone called back and recommended, and I have been doing great sexually masturbation. I can come, I sometimes fantasize about it, but at least I'm not watching it, and I know it's a fetish of mine, I'm not going to be able to change that about myself. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay with what I like and my fantasies. And I just really appreciate you taking my call. It means a lot. It really, really helped me feel okay with myself and take the necessary steps to reflect my morals and my actions. Before we wind things up, I just want to say thank you to Benjamin Vail. You may remember a few shows ago, I mentioned it was my birthday, and I said all I wanted for my birthday was for people to 
take people to the polls to vote in these crucial midterm elections. And Benjamin tweeted at me, happy birthday, fake Dan Savage. I brought my great aunt to the polls this midterm. And Ben included a really beautiful picture of him with his great aunt at the polls wearing their I just voted button. So thank you for the lovely gift, Ben. It is exactly what I wanted for my birthday. People getting people who may have trouble getting to the polls to the polls to vote. Thanks again. We're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Katha Pollitt on Twitter at Katha Pollitt. Tickets are on sale now for the Hump Festival in Seattle and Portland. Go to HumpSeattle.com for tickets. That's our annual amateur porn festival in Seattle and Portland. Come one, come all, and check it out. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.